5. G.H. to sink the land in shame, the speaker declared. There were a trifle over a hundred thousand children between the ages of 6 and 14 working in the factories of America last year. The figures show that over half of them were working more in 8 hours a day, that a large percentage were working 12 to 16 hours, and 22,000 of them are at night work. As he said the last words, the crusader hurried away in response to a call from one of the men. He resumed his carrying in of the red-hot bottles from the benches where the men had been molding them, to the unkneeling oven, and for a time Hamilton watched him. The work was a fearful strain. Sitting where he was, Hamilton could see all the way to the unkneeling oven, counting the number of steps the crusader had to take. Hamilton found the distance to be about 100 feet, and watching another boy, who was working regularly, not intermittently as was the city lad's new acquaintance. He found that 72 trips an hour were made, making the distance covered in 8 hours nearly 22 miles. The red-hot bottles were carried in asbestos shovels, and these had to be kept fairly straight, imposing a terrific strain upon the back. In addition to this, the boys were compelled to face the furnace each time they came back, passing from the heat of the melting oven, in front of a drafty open door, to the heat of the unkneeling oven, in order to keep up with the work. The boys had to run for it could not be done at a walk, and thus were alternately greatly overheated and chilled with icy drafts, seeing that the crusader would be busy for a while, but wanting to take the matter up with him further, Hamilton strolled over to where the glass blowers were working, this particular factory was turning out cheap glass bottles, and there was little of the fascination that exists in factories where high-grade glass is made into many curious shapes and blown with great skill into marvelous thinness. In the middle of the room was a large round furnace containing a number of small doors not quite four feet from the ground, and a glass blower was stationed before each of these, with long iron blowpipes these men, by giving the blowpipe a little twirl as they thrust it into the semi-molten metal, drew out on the end of it a small mass of glass, of about the consistency of nearly melted sealing wax, and holding this mass on the end of the blowpipe by keeping it in motion, they blew it into balls and rolled the ball of soft red-hot glass on their rolling boards, then they lifted the blowpipe and blew again, sharp and hard, forcing the soft glass to its proper form, the now cooling glass was broken from the end of the blowpipe with a sharp, snapping sound, and the blowpipe was plunged in the furnace again for another bottle, the hole had taken but a few seconds, why do they have so many boys around these places, queried Hamilton of the workmen he had been watching, have to, they say, the glass blower replied, cheap bottles mean cheap labor, no one ever expects to pay anything for a bottle that is thrown in with everything liquid you buy, the manufacturer's got to make his little profit somewhere and in a cheap bottle he makes it by employing young boys cheap and working until they drop, is it done this way everywhere, the workman shook his head, no need to do it even here, he said, it takes money, though, to put in an endless belt to carry the bottles to the annealing oven. The big factories mostly have em, but there are plenty of places like this in small towns where everything is done on a cheap scale, and a boy's labor is about the cheapest thing in the United States unless it's a girl's. Seeing that the glass blower was being delayed in his task, Hamilton sauntered away, and went back to the place where the crusader worked. The latter broke out again as soon as he saw the boy coming. I've been talking to you about children working, he said. But you haven't thought of babies being made to work? Babies, a four and five years old, 
but they couldn't do any real work, exclaimed Hamilton. Do you know what one factory owner in the South said? Not knowing he was talking to a member of the Child Labor Commission, he said a kid three-year-old can soon learn to straighten out tobacco leaves for wrappers, and a little worker for his good help in stripping, in a cigar factory, of course, and the children find it so hard to keep up that they are taught to choose enough as a stimulant before they are six-year-old. Jane Adams, right now the torture chambers they call cotton mills in parts of the South, said she saw on the night shift, with her teeth all blackened and decayed from excessive snuff chewing, a little girl oh five year old, busily and clumsily tying threads in coarse muslin, and answering a question she said she had been there every night throughout the hot summer except two, when her legs and back wouldn't let her get up, and what do you suppose the factory owner did send a physician? Remember he docked her the two days wages for the time she'd been away ill, and another day's fine as a punishment. That's brutal, cried Hamilton. Didn't the parents protest? The parents? That's where the mill owners have their strongest help. They threaten to discharge the parents if the children don't work and work hard, and they force the father or mother into a whipping the child to compel it to stay at the loom. The whole country went to war once over the question of a Negro having to work under compulsion, or at least, that had quite a bit to do with the war. But you can enslave white children. You can starve em. You can shut em up in rooms without air. You can surround em with dangerous machinery. You can force em to be whipped. You can snatch em from their cradles in their homes. You can snap your fingers at the schools. And you can fill churchyards with a worse massacre of the innocents than history ever tells about. And the men and women of America don't care. Illustration. I ain't seen daylight for two years. Trapper boy working a 12-hour day below ground, often too tired to go up in the cage at the end of the day and sleeping on the ground beside the track. Courtesy of the Ridgeway Company. Oh, yes, they do. Again protested Hamilton. It must be that they don't know. How can they help but know? There are a few that have heard what Spargo calls the bitter cry of the children. But those few are very few. And the misery on shame goes on. Getting worse with every year. What's going to be done? The children will have to rescue the children. The boy cried. If men's hearts are cold and women's hearts are asleep, at least the boys can hear. There's no power like a boy's. And a boy will do anything that's big and brave and worth a doing. In a year from now I'm going to start a crusade. Like the children's crusade in history. And march to every mill and factory in the United States where a child is working. And make the owner sign a paper pledging himself not to employ a child again. Give me an army of American boys and I'll sweep the country like a flight of locusts. But who would join? Every boy word of his salt. Suppose I came to you and said in that mill at the end on your street. Little children are being slaved and driven to death because no one has the nerve to say what they think. We'll rescue those children. Join us. We're 500 strong. Would you go along? Guess I'd have to join. The boy agreed. But you'd get into all sorts of trouble. Can I get into a worse trouble than any of those babies have? The other asked indignantly. What right have I to go on, even as I do, knowing how they are suffering? I don't care about trouble. I've had nothing else all my life. But if by getting into trouble myself, I could get even one hollow-eyed shadow of a child to run about and play like other folks, I'd be willing to take anything that come after. I don't see that carrying bottles is going to help the world much. But if I can carry hope and health to some little boy or girl, I'm going to do it. How? I don't know. 
but I ain't going to die without being able to remember some poor child that's better off because lived, what can I do to help, asked Hamilton eagerly and aggressively, as though he expected instant marching orders to some distant factory, you can do something, every boy can do something, if nothing else, you can help to wake a sleeping and selfish nation, if the cry you know the children has ever rung in your ears, it'll never stop till you're doing something to help, do you think I could dream every day, as I do, oh that spectral army of pygmy people sucked in from the hills to dance beside the grazing wheel and not do something, but, could I hear tramping round me day and night, the lagging step of a gaunt goblin army that outwatches the sun by day and the stars by night, and work and sleep in peace, and there's one thing more to say, and then I must go, that there's a stain oh shame pontoon the honor of America that'll never be wiped away until child labor is put down, thoughtful and subdued in spirit, Hamilton strolled back to the night superintendent's office, where he found the figures done at last and the completed schedule awaiting him. He gratefully accepted the offer of a cup of coffee, from some which had just been sent in and sat down beside the desk. I've been talking with the crusader, he remarked. The night superintendent looked up interestedly. What do you think of him? he asked, a little sharply. Hamilton thought, I think there's no question about his being sincere, the boy answered. But I can hardly believe that the figures he gives and the facts he talks about are true. They're true enough. I'm sorry to say, said the older man, sighing. But the crusader usually isn't fair to the South. He blames the South for the cotton mill horrors. When, as a matter of fact, a very large proportion of the mills in which the worst conditions were found are owned by New England capitalists. I'm a New Englander by birth myself. Naughty to at Yale. But I'm able to see the mistakes of the North just the same. I've always been taught that the North was more or less mixed up in it, answered Hamilton. It was shown to me a long time ago that the slavery in the South wasn't started by the plantation owners. There were no Southern vessels in the slave trade. They were all New England skippers and New England bottoms. The shame of the slave traffic belongs originally to the North, and now a large share of the child labor, too. The other agreed. But you've got to remember that it was the easy shiftlessness of the South that made such conditions possible. I guess the blame is about even. But is nothing being done on this child labor business? Asked Hamilton. I tried to find that out from the crusader but he didn't answer. Yes. Said the superintendent heartily. A great deal is being done. The Bureau of the Census has been of immense service. And other bureaus of the Department of Commerce and Labor are working on it largely through information gathered for them by the census. Then there have been thorough congressional investigations, and the states are being checked up hard to ensure that factory inspection shall be real, not nominal. Don't let the crusader persuade you that everybody is asleep and that nothing is being done, the government is doing a good deal, although the country as a whole isn't aware of it, yet it is increasing, in spite of all that is done to prevent it, it is increasing, the other said quietly. That is the sad part. If it could be thought of as a passing thing, it would be bad enough. But to know that every month hundreds of children die from enforced labor and that greater numbers fill their places, is a sad reflection on the industrial life of today. Well, as the South progresses, that will probably take care of itself, won't it? Queried the boy. The superintendent looked at him curiously. I think you told me last evening that you were a New York boy. He said, yes. Mr. Wharton, answered Hamilton, I suppose you consider New York a fairly progressive city, greatest on earth, 
affirmed the boy in true Gotham style, yet that same progressive city, the older man declared, is the headquarters of several forms of industry in which large percentages of the workers are children under 14 years of age. What kinds of business can those be? asked Hamilton in surprise, making ostrich plumes and artificial flowers. It's not factory labor, of course, but that doesn't alter the point that at least half the output of artificial flowers is made by the cramped fingers of children, generally after school and far into the night. They are not officially reported, of course, but less than 20% is done by men. The disgraceful fact that the New York schools are so crowded that many of them can only give half time to the children and consequently teach them into sections is a great help to the sweatshop managers. But every city has its own share of this child labor in the homes. Although in some of the smaller places, civic associations and municipalities have taken the matter in hand with considerable success. Even that is but a drop in the ocean. Your crusader will have to lead his crusade then, it seems. The boy suggested, poor lad, sighed the superintendent. Why? asked Hamilton. He will never lead that crusade. The older man replied pensively. Why not? The man tapped his chest significantly. He is incurably ill, he said. Partly glass blower's disease from breathing the particles of glass dust. Men don't mind it so much. But it is fatal to children when the lungs are not yet strong. We keep the crusader here in order to help him as much as we can. Although he gives a lot of trouble in the works with his revolutionary theories, I haven't the heart to send him away, he couldn't get other work, and being all alone in the world, he might starve, you mean, that he will not live six months, that army of boys of which he speaks so often will never go on the march, the banners he has designed for it will wave over no other battalions than those he has seen in dreams, and the drums will sound the final taps for him before they roll for the advance, and in that sleep, the cries of the children shall all be happy ones. Illustration, eight years old and tired of working. Boy in Southern Cotton Mill who has been employed two summers and a winter before that. Chapter V, Don't Deport My Old Mother. The Crusaders talk on the child labor question set Hamilton's mind working. And as soon as he got back to Washington and was busy tabulating the manufacturing statistics which had been gathered and sent in he tried to learn something about the employment of children. He chanced to meet one of the photographers who had been with the Congressional Commission, and the tales this man told were even more detailed. Hamilton found that the figures quoted had not been overstated, and he determined that just as soon as he grew old enough he would do all he could toward correcting this abuse. But Hamilton found the actual statistical work not a little tedious, although it was work which usually he enjoyed and this sense of the time dragging was largely due to the fact that the boy had not heard a word about his being considered in line for the population work. It was therefore a considerable relief to him when Mr. Burns said to him suddenly one morning, So you're going over to the population side. I hear, am I? I didn't know. Hamilton replied, I had wanted to go, but not hearing anything about it, I was afraid the plan had been shelved. The director told me this morning that you were going to be transferred. The director himself? Yes. I had a talk with him about the figures for the manufacturers of the New England states. And we happened to mention you, he knew your name. So I told him that your schedules had averaged six and a third percent better than those of anyone else in that section. So he said, that reminds me. I had almost forgotten that I had decided to put Noble on the population work. I'll see that arrangements for that transfer are made. 
and he scribbled something on a pad, that was awfully kind of you, Mr. Burns, said Hamilton, to mention me to the director in that way, the statistician looked at him curiously, I wasn't dealing in kindness, he said dryly, I was dealing in percentages, if that turned out well for you, it is yourself you have to thank, not me, I merely stated the figures, and they read in your favor, the boy laughed outright, I believe, Mr. Burns, he said, that you would more easily forgive a man who attacked you personally than one who gave you an incorrect list of figures, certainly I would, the statistician replied, I could hit back in the first case, but in the second who can tell how far I might be led astray, well, the boy answered, I'm glad at any rate that my figures tallied up all right, I don't want to seem inquisitive, said the older man, but when did you get in the population examination? There was some talk of my being accepted without going through the exam, said Hamilton, because of the fact that I was doing census work of a more difficult character already, but I thought I would rather feel that everything had been done in the usual manner. I took the exam at New Haven, one afternoon, but are you going to do the population work there? Remember Mr. Burns, the boy explained. The director wrote to me that I would be allowed to send in a formal application in the regular way through the supervisor of the enumeration district to which I had asked to be assigned. The supervisor of that district had said beforehand that he would be willing to appoint me, as the section was so sparse that enough qualified enumerators were hard to get. Well, where are you going, then? I don't know. For sure yet, of course, the boy explained, whether everything will go through as planned. But if so, I shall be going to Kentucky, in the mountains where you had been visiting, oh, remember, the boy answered, in another part of the state entirely, down toward the black belt of Kentucky, Kentucky isn't a black belt state, his friend objected, remember Mr. Burns, but there are parts where the Negroes are tolerably thickly settled, the supervisor is a friend of my older brother, and he says that is an interesting part of the country. But can a board of examiners in one district look over the papers for the supervisor of another district? Remember sir, or, explained the boy. But they can allow the examination to be taken before them and have the papers sent to the supervisor of the other district. It was a little irregular, I suppose. But the director knew all about it and it was for the good of the census, he thought. As he had been told there were not enough enumerators in the district to which I hoped to go. Well, the statistician replied. If you're headed for Kentucky I should think you'd like to see your folks before going. I had planned to go upon Saturday afternoon. Hamilton said, I can get to New York by evening and spend Saturday night and all day Sunday there. Catching the midnight train back. It brings me in early enough for office hours. And this is Friday. Said the other thoughtfully. I'll tell you what to do. I can arrange for you to be off Saturday morning. It is only a half day and you can catch the first train out after business hours today, that would be bully, I estimate, the statistician said, rapidly dotting down some figures on a pad, that the fractions of overtime you have worked recently, cumulatively considered, enable me to do that fairly, so that you've earned it, that's fine, said Hamilton, for the family is going to Europe for the summer, and I shouldn't see any of them at all unless I ran up to New York now. The older man nodded his confirmation of the suggested arrangement, and returned to his figures. During the noon hour Hamilton hurriedly packed a grip, and was back at the office without a minute lost, for he found a train leaving at a most advantageous hour, 
and by calling a taxi he was just able to catch it. At breakfast the following morning, the conversation turned upon immigration, and Hamilton read in a newspaper the statement that two large liners were in New York Harbor and would dock that morning, that each carried a record passenger list of immigrants, and that Ellis Island was making preparations for a busy day. I've never seen Ellis Island, the boy announced, Father. Do you know if visitors are allowed over there? I'm fairly sure of it, his father replied, but in any case there ought to be no trouble for you, since the Bureau of the Census is a part of the Department of Commerce and Labor, just as is the Bureau of Immigration, I think I'd like to go, I think you ought to go, his father said, taking up the population business, you ought to try to get hold of all the information you can, ahead of time, I have been there several times, on business and it is a most interesting place. Accordingly, the 11 o'clock boat from the barge office, New York, appeared near Castle Garden, the historic immigration station, carried Hamilton to the famous Ellis Island, preferring his request. The lad speedily found himself in the presence of the commissioner. He stated his wants briefly, Mr. Commissioner, he said, I'm an assistant agent of the Census Bureau in Washington, and I'm just going to my station as an enumerator for the population. I have two days in New York and I'd like to learn how things are done on the island here. May I have a pass? The commissioner answered briefly. Read this. He said, taking a sheaf of manuscript out of the drawer of his desk. And here's a short review for the use of visitors. And I'll send you into the chief clerk to get a pass. And if there's anything more you want, let me know. He touched a bell. Show this gentleman to Mr. Tutman. And let him be given a special pass. He said and Hamilton was ushered out promptly, thinking as he went that this was evidently one place where time was not wasted. The chief clerk was equally ready to assist the lad, and armed with his special pass he started round the building. Finding himself practically free of the island, Hamilton possessed the capacity of making friends readily, and with his alert manner and direct appeal, he usually secured attention. Walking sharply through the place he soon found himself down in what was called the Information Division. For the moment one of the clerks was not busy, and Hamilton, stepping up to him, began to ply him with questions. A tall young fellow, who was standing nearby, listened for a few moments, then turned to Hamilton. See here, he said, you can't learn much about Ellis Island just by asking questions. You've got to go around and see for yourself. That's just what I propose doing, Hamilton answered, but I thought it wouldn't be such a bad plan to get an idea of things first, and then I should understand what I saw. There's not much use in watching things unless you understand just what's going on. I have some knowledge of it, of course, because the commissioner gave me some reading matter to look over, and I've got a special pass, so that I want to make the best use of it. Suppose you come along with me, then, said his new acquaintance who was none other than the chief of the information division, and I'll show you round myself as far as I can spare the time. It so happens that there are a lot of scattering things I want to look after through the building today, and if you don't mind my leaving you alone, once in a while, I'll take you through systematically. Where do you want to begin? Right at the very start, rejoined Hamilton. I always think the beginning is the most important part, and I'd hate to lose any of it. All right said his conductor good-humoredly, if you want it all, you shall have it, I notice, too, he said, as they walked along the hall and out of the door to the well-kept lawns that stretched between the main building and the sea wall, 
Bet you're in good time, for there's a barge just pulling in. The barge is from one of the liners that came in this morning, I suppose, queried the lad. Yes, one of the Hamburg boats, his guide replied. Are those barges run by the immigration authorities? Munger was the answer. Those are owned or managed by the steamboat companies. They bring all the steerage passengers who can't show that they are citizens, and all the cabin passengers who are being detained. Cabin passengers, echoed Hamilton in surprise. I didn't think any cabin passengers came to Ellis Island. All second cabin, I suppose. Not a bit of it, answered the immigration official. There's quite a sprinkling of first-class passengers as well. Why, during a period of three months recently, nearly 3,000 cabin passengers were detained on the island here, and I suppose 20% of them had come over in the first-class saloon. But why should any first-class passengers be stopped and shipped to Ellis Island? Queried the boy. I don't understand. I thought Ellis Island was to keep out people who were paupers, or diseased, or were undesirable citizens. Illustration, the biggest liner in the world coming in ocean steamship with thousands of immigrants on board entering New York Harbor, the Statue of Liberty in the distance. Brown Brothers, that's just exactly what it is for. The other replied, but the United States government doesn't think that having money enough to pay for a first-class passage makes every man a desirable citizen. A first-class birth is no insurance against an incurable disease. For example, and there's nothing to prevent a criminal from coming over in the first cabin. He laughed. Most of them do, I think, he said. It really never appealed to me just that way. The boy remarked, I suppose tall was that first-class passengers went right through if they passed quarantine. That would mix things up. The older man said, why, in that case we should have all the mentally deficient, all the paupers, and all the freaks landing here in shoals, any group of friends or any government, for that matter, would find it cheap and easy to dump all the public charges of Europe on our shores for the price of a first-class ticket. Oh, remember that would never do. Once in a while, you hear passengers on the big liners complaining of the inquiries made before they land, but it's got to be done. You can see for yourself what would happen if we didn't, but if they bring plenty of money, they would not become public charges. Remember and we can't exclude them on that ground. But money, for example, has nothing to do with crime or anarchism or things of that sort. I tell you, there's a big slice of our work done before ever a vessel reaches her dock at a New York pier. Of course, problems do come up nearly every day, such as circus freaks. For instance, you mean the living skeleton, the tattooed lady, the fat baby, the giant, and so forth? Asked Hamilton. Exactly. Are those people to be considered desirable citizens? or not, there is no question as to their inability to make a living by any customary kind of work, but on the other hand it is very difficult to prove that they could not get good money at a sideshow, if, however, they are able to show that they have been engaged in Europe by an American circus manager, they can come under the alien contract labor law, then this string of people, said Hamilton, pointing to those who had just been unloaded from the barge, maybe from all classes of the ship, they might be, his guide replied, but the chances are that they are all steerage. Cabin passengers that are detained usually come on the last boat, with the inspector. We have quarters here with a little more privacy for them, and they are kept together. But now watch this line. Suppose we go this way, and stepping over a low iron railing, the official, followed by Hamilton, 
walked briskly up beside the line. A few yards from the door of the building, this line of people passed into a long barred lane. At the entrance of this stood an inspector who checked off the large ticket each immigrant had pinned on him to show his identity. In order to prevent confusion further on, passing before the inspector at brief but regularly measured intervals, the immigrants walked one by one up this barred lane to where it made a right angle. There's the first inspecting doctor, said Hamilton's conductor, pointing to a man standing just at the angle and watching carefully each immigrant as he walked up. After a moment Hamilton turned to his companion in surprise, but he isn't doing anything, he said. Doctor, said the chief of the division, with a laugh, I am afraid we shall have to investigate this matter. Here is a lad who says that you're doing nothing. He's watched you for a couple of minutes and you haven't made a move. Hamilton began to protest, but the big doctor only laughed in reply, without taking his eyes. However, from the procession of figures which one by one walked up to him and made the turn round the angle, if he'll wait a minute or two more, he said, perhaps I'll have a chance to do something, and save my reputation. There was a pause, then the doctor continued, I think there's something doing now, watch this man coming up, he seems to limp just the merest trifle, that's all I can see, the boy replied, bone disease of some kind, or maybe joint, the doctor said, tuberculous hip like as not, and as the man passed by he leaned forward and chalked a big beak on the shoulder of his coat, before bones, the doctor explained to Hamilton, what will happen to him, asked the boy of the immigration official, because of that mark, yes, sir, it simply means that he will be held for special inquiry, he may be all right, but before he is passed, he will have to be examined physically a thorough physical examination, I mean, now here, you see, is another doctor, eight or ten yards further on stood another man, all in white as the first had been, who took up the inspection where the judge of bone malformations had left off, a sunken chest, he explained to Hamilton, a hectic flush, a pinched nostril, an evident difficulty in breathing, a certain carriage of the head, a blueness of the lips, certain types of pallor, all these and a number of little points which experience had shown to be symptoms of organic disease his trained eye could detect at a glance, and he, too, every few minutes, stooped forward and chalked upon the coat of the man or the blouse of the woman, as the case might be, a letter which told of a suspected disease, I suppose I ought not to say anything, said Hamilton, but that, 